0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, January the 29th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'm joined in studio today by Marcos Kunalakis. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and president and publisher emeritus of the fabled Washington Monthly Magazine. He writes a foreign affairs column for the Miami Herald and McClatchy Tribune News. And he is also the second, so we talked about the four yes. the podcast here, the second gentleman, the second partner. What, yes. is your, what is your non-official title in California these days? So, so
1: I, I am going with what Jennifer Siebel Newsom calls herself, which is she is the first partner and uh, non-gender specific. And so I asked her, and she said, you are second partner. So I'm going with what Jen Newsom says, although Wikipedia seems to be having a bit of a war on whether I'm a second gentleman or a second partner.
0: Now, for those not familiar with California politics, we're referring to the fact that your lovely wife, Eleni Kunalakis, is the Lieutenant Governor of California. That's correct. Which unconstitutionally puts her second in command. She is the governor when Gavin Newsom leaves airspace.
1: That's right. So somebody asked me uh, at this at an event on Sunday whether or not I would be acting first partner in the event that Gavin Newsom leaves the state. And I said, well, Jen is unlikely to also be going because she's got four kids. So I remain who I am. Well, here's my question, Marco. Should,
0: <laughs> should when Newsom leaves airspace and she becomes acting governor, can you pardon me? Can you run out traffic takes <laughs> What can you do for me,
1: Cal? Well, there are a lot, apparently, that you can do. Yes. But there is nothing that you should do other than make sure that the lights remain on and that you don't, and that you're there for crisis, right? right. I mean, you make sure that you're covering the bases, that somebody's sitting in the chair. Uh, as you well know, Bill, because you've been around this for a long time, there have been lieutenant governors in the past who've taken the prerogative of making judicial appointments, for example. Yes. So uh, she doesn't plan on doing that. And at her swearing in, where Gavin Newsom actually spoke and and referred to Eleni as someone who he's looking for, that's my wife's name, Eleni Kunalakis, who he's looking towards uh, to create a new type of relationship with lieutenant governor. He was saying he was looking forward to the partnership. Um, That was not always the case. Uh, In fact, it's rare that the uh, governor and the lieutenant governor, who are two constitutionally separately elected uh, officials have that type of relationship, but I, I think he's really looking, as someone who was lieutenant governor for the last eight years, as uh, understands the capacities, the opportunities, and recognizes the amount of work that really falls on the governor's uh, plate that uh, he'd like to share to some degree.
0: Okay, great. Well, tell totally her congratulations. Thank you. Okay. So, let's talk today about um, a country that has one thing the United States doesn't have right now, and that's abundant warm weather. <laughs> well, that's one of the few positive things you can say about this yeah. country. You wrote about it in a column recently in the Miami Herald, and that's the nation of Venezuela, Marcos. Yes. The, the land of grace, the Bolivarian Republic. Uh, Venezuela, for those not familiar with it, is about 111th uh, the size of the United States in geography. Its uh, population is about 32 million people, which is about, what, three fourths of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Venezuela, Marcos, has uh, one, um, one odd thing going on right now. It has not one but two presidents.
1: Yeah, that's not what's going on in California. Thankfully, <laughs> no.
0: Uh, so, so there is one president. So, a little background on yes. this. So, one one of the presidents is a gentleman named Nicolas Maduro. Yes. He is technically the nation's 46th president. He is, uh, I like to think of as the Ralph Crandom of Venezuelan politics <laughs> because what he was a bus driver. At one yes, point. that's he was right. A Caracas bus driver. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then gets on board with Hugo Chavez yes. in the uh, formation of the of the, uh, the Fifth Republic movement. He becomes interim president in 2013 after Chavez dies. Uh, in 2016, he declares not but one, two states of emergency, a state of economic emergency, a state of constitutional emergency. He is re-elected in 2018 to a six-year term. They do six years in Venezuela, not four here in the U.S., at which point the United States and 14 Latin nations, Marcos, uh, call that election a sham. Yeah. Enter Juan Guaido. Yes. Guaido, Guaido. Guaido. Guaido, thank yes. you. Guaido. He is 35 years old. He is a former industrial engineer. He uh, first rode to prominence leading student protests against Chavez. In 2015, he is elected to the National Assembly. Uh, He is then elevated to the um, head of the National Assembly and under the Venezuelan constitution. If there is a vacancy in the presidency, the head of the assembly becomes the president. And this is why we have two presidents of Venezuela, right? There is one who claims he was duly elected. And Guaido claims it was a fraud, and he is not. So take it from here, Marcos, what is going on?
1: Well, uh, as you can imagine, when you've got two people claiming the presidency, there's a bit of conflict in the country. And so um, the illegitimacy of Maduro's election is something that I think is generally understood, certainly by the people who are in the streets in uh, Venezuela, and they're numbering in the hundreds of thousands at this point. Um, When Maduro was uh, elected, uh, the second time, this most recent election that right. was considered an illegitimate election, and and he had disempowered the National Assembly of which Guaido is actually the president.
0: Now, illegitimate, Marcos, because of what stuffing ballot boxes, not counting votes, how how is yeah. it not illegitimate? So
1: it, any part? number of these aspects that are that we look at in whenever you try to define whether or not there's a legitimate election it, right. in, was was true on the ground in Venezuela, mm-hmm. and so. Um, uh, And and secondarily, this constitutional crisis that allowed him to then uh, basically be um, crowned, in many ways, the president in the second term in this 2018 term. Uh, So you have, uh, and, and in the process, he also constituted essentially a second assembly, one that is not the National Assembly, one that was not elected in the same way. Uh, And also, just to go back to his election, it was the lowest turnout ever. We're talking about 20% of the nation that actually came. So there was, uh, you know, you may suggest that, in fact, those who voted were those who did not go to the ballots. So uh, for all those reasons, um, you have internationally understood to be illegitimate election, a president who is... Uh, standing on the thinnest of reeds in terms of being able to claim the presidency, and now a popular movement which really rivals, as, as you intimated when you uh, talked about my piece called Latin Spring, uh, a popular movement that is rising up against both his illegitimacy, but also right. the inability of this leadership to deliver the most basic of, right. of resources and services.
0: Now here's what you wrote about the uh, Latin Spring column. You said you wrote, quote, Arab, Arab Spring move aside, Latin Spring is now blossoming. and If it all goes well, it will be less bloody and a lot more successful in ousting corrupt leaders and promoting homegrown demor- democratically elected representatives than the Middle East revolutions. Yes. Okay, that's pretty optimistic.
1: Uh, yes, well, I mean, and this was written about half an hour after the uh, L- after Guaido had declared himself president. I, yes. so I write for the Miami Herald where they're located. The neighborhood actually is located in Little Venezuela, mm-hmm. and so they needed to really have some feedback immediately, right. and so I wanted to frame what I see as the opportunity that exists currently. And thankfully, the it has not been a bloody mess quite yet. There have been a few deaths in the protest movement, but it is not the types of mowing down that we've seen and that we saw in the Arab Spring or in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And so um, I'm encouraged, not only because the United States immediately recognized uh, Guaido's leadership and his interim presidency, but they, but he was joined by the um, by the Lima Group. He was joined by any number of states that the United States is allied with, and so you have an international movement of really supporting uh, this popular movement that's that's uh, quite successful in the streets.
0: Right now, uh, before I put you on the spot about <laughs> what's going to happen next in yeah. Venezuela and things may be breaking very soon. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a bit about how Venezuela got in the situation, Marcos. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did a little homework for the podcast, and uh, let me throw a few figures at you and get your your thoughts on this. Before Hugo Chavez comes to power, Venezuela produces about 3.5 million barrels of oil a day. Maduro claims right now the country is producing about a million three. Um, That's probably much lower, though, than a million three. Uh, The International Monetary Fund estimates that inflation (laughs) in Venezuela could reach 10 million percent. Let me repeat that. Ten million percent inflation in the United States is about one point nine percent. Yes, uh, the Venezuelan government was forced to remove five zeros from its bolivar currency. Uh, a kilogram of carrots cost about three million bolivars. is in Venezuela it's about forty-six cents. Yeah, uh, healthcare. One of the tragedies in this country right now is health Marcos. Yes. Infant mortality has grown from about 15 deaths per 1,000 live births in 2008 to 21.1 in 2016. This is what comes from not adequately funding health care. There were about 696,000 Venezuelans living abroad in 2015, Marcos. They're now closer to about 2.3 million. Yep. And this is the equivalent of what the United States has called the brain drain from the Midwest because a lot of these Venezuelans are people who are educated. They're doctors, teachers, and so forth. Yes. They're not. They're fleeing their country. And it is the only country in the world with less economic freedom than, the than, than only one country th- in the world has less economic freedom, North Korea. Oh, great. So, <laughs> so there's an old joke, capitalists walk their dogs, socialists eat them. Yes. But as we look at, we look at this train wreck, Marcos, here's the question. How much of this do we attribute to socialism? How much do we attribute to bad leadership, dictatorships? And then how much to bad economic planning and dependency upon oil?
1: Uh, So I think they're all a factor to some degree, Uh, and, uh, you know, you really went through the litany of these horrific things. The the situation on the ground is just desperate. You know, we're talking about 90% of the country living in poverty. Last year, the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds, and I'm not talking about English pounds. I'm talking about weight. You know, this is just astounding, the, the effect that this is having at the personal level Every day on the ground, where people can barely buy enough food to survive. Right. So um, you broke it down into socialism. I'd say there's some degree of ideology, but less the ideology here. I, yes, uh, the ideology was something that was being leveraged in the early days of uh, Chavez to uh, to really face up to the realities of of, uh, of a population that wasn't being serviced in the in the working classes and farming the rural. Uh, classes he was delivering. Right. He had lots of oil, as you mentioned in your second point. He had lots of revenues at the time. Oil was pricey. It was plentiful. And he was able to leverage it to actually deliver both services and and uh, other goods to those who were under in the previous administrations. So there's a reason why he was popular. Um, and, uh, and finally, I guess what we call the resource curse, right, and how much of a nation relies on a singular um, resource at, to develop its, its budget. Right. And in Venezuela, that's no question that's been the case. But, but to keep it up requires that you actually have a functioning government. So I would say that the overall overarching challenge has been governance for that Nation, and that's why oil doesn't work. It's why the ruling ideology doesn't function, because you can have socialist countries or socialist-oriented countries that actually function. Sweden, for many years, was Sort right. of Denmark, for that matter. You know, they they work just fine, um, and they delivered services and healthcare and any number of, of things that we equate with the socialist or social democratic governments. But uh, but you can't have it when socialism is just a mask for authoritarian uh, kleptocracy.
0: Okay, let's talk about what should be going on in the nation's capital now with regard to Venezuela. November 18th, 2013, Marcos John Kerry, he's the Secretary of the State at the time, Yeah, he attends a meeting of the Organization of American States in the nation's capital, and he says the following, quote, the era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hate it when people say these things. It's like yes. Bill Clinton saying the era of government is over. The right. Government is over. But that's what Kerry said. The yes. era of the uh, the era of the Monroe Doctrine is over. And lest I throw mm-hmm. him completely under the bus, let me read the rest of what he said, just yeah. to put this in fair context. And here's what he said at the time. Quote. The relationship that we seek and that we would and that we have worked hard to foster is not about a United States declaration about how and when it will intervene in the affairs of other American states. It's about all of our countries viewing one another as equals, Mm -hmm. sharing responsibilities, cooperating on security issues, and adhering not to doctrine but to the decisions that we make as partners to advance the values and the interests that we share. So this is what John Kerry is getting at in 2013: We are not Teddy Roosevelt. We are not you know, carrying a big stick. We are not getting involved in taking Panama away from Colombia. <clears throat> we're not Linda Johnson getting involved in the affairs of uh, the Dominican Republic. We're not getting involved in Cuba. We're not evading Grenada. We're treating these countries as co-equals. But in 2019, Marcos, is this a smart policy? Well,
1: it's one that we're no longer adhering to. I mean, even from the early days of Rex Tillerson, he really invoked the Monroe Doctrine when he was talking about right. Venezuela. He was encouraging the military to rise up against maduro to in fact have a homegrown coup he was even intimating that the united states would get militarily involved so while it's a right and it's and it's the and it's really just to try and get maduro out of there without right. any uh, you know with as little bloodshed as possible because of the people of venezuela and what they deserve it is not smart or wise for the united states to suddenly play or even suggest that it's going to play this role. It has such a bad taste in all of Latin America. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be playing behind the scenes. I mean, I'm I, in the piece that you referenced earlier, I suggested that we both nudged and nurtured some of this opposition, and we very well did uh, in multiple ways, and we should have. But to play a leading role and to even uh, think or reflect upon a potential military role in Latin America is suicidal for the United States in terms of what the future would hold for us in our backyard. The, the stakes are so high, the potential so great for the United States to really rebuild those bridges to a Latin America that is suspect of our actions in the past, mm-hmm. that for good reason is angry about some of the things that we've done, whether it was in Chile or the CIA's involvement in other aspects of Latin American policy. Uh, we have to be extremely cautious about the perceptions and the optics of what it is we're doing, which is, which seems to me right now, as we are a few days into this, uh, we're, we're, we're not being as cautious as we should be.
0: Okay, on Sunday, John Bolton, he is the president's national security advisor, yes. uh, took over for H.R. McMaster, now here at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Bolton told reporters that, quote, all options are on the table. He then announced new sanctions on PDVA, which is the Venezuelan state-owned oil company. And then he sent a message, which is pretty hard to miss. He said that Venezuelan military and security forces should accept a, quote, peaceful democratic constitutional transfer of power. Yeah. So that's the bar that we've set.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm all for encouraging the military to do this peaceful transfer of power. And I think that all options always remain on the table. And I don't find that as a threat necessarily right. either, and but, in particular because, you know, there was a the concern for U.S. diplomats. And so, of course, you have to be able to say, we will respond right. should there be any threat to their safety or security.
0: Right. Now, something else that happened was that Bolton was carrying a legal pad. Yeah. And on <laughs> that legal pad was sketched the following words, quote, 5,000 troops to Columbia.
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> and making sure he showed all the cameras that <laughs> I mean, that was, it was the case. The camera, yes. So. That's, <laughs> yeah. Well, not exactly subtlety at its finest, you know. And uh, okay, so that's his form of pulling off diplomacy. I don't, as I say, I don't consider it particularly subtle and not really smart, to be quite frank. You know, it, they know in Venezuela. that the everyone who is in power understands the strength that the United States and its allies bring to the table. What they also should understand is that the United States will, should be cautious in using any of that military force. Because if it doesn't appear to be homegrown, if it doesn't appear to be regionally supported by the organization of, of uh, American states, then it runs the risk of appearing to be what many on the left in the United States and others who are misguided are calling a coup. I call it a coup, but I call it a constitutional coup. I do not see this as, an, as a foreign-grown or a foreign-led uh, coup of any other sort.
0: So we're doing this podcast on a Tuesday afternoon. Yes.
1: So um, please, anything we're saying right now will not so be necessarily everything valid. Right.
0: Everything, so it's got a very short shelf life. But, yeah. So here's the question. As we speak at this hour, Marcos, does Maduro have the army? Does he have the military behind him?
1: It it appears so. Uh, He does not have the military attache in Washington, D.C., but that's understandable. Um, It's hard to know, unless you're on the ground, what the rumblings are. You can usually assume that the senior leadership is going to stay pretty uh, close to him. By the same token, every one of those soldiers, even if they are getting preferential treatment on the daily basis in terms of food and services, has family in that country that are probably not getting the types of preferential services and, and resources that, that they th- that they are. And recognizes what the problems are. Many times when a military flips, it's not in its senior most ranks. It can be in the mid ranks or even in the, at the uh, soldier level. Mm-hmm. So I can't answer that question, but I'm pretty sure that anybody who's uh, rank and file within the military understands and is sympathetic to what's going on in the streets.
0: So if Maduro has access to the military, what leverage does Guaido have?
1: Um, Well, he has the threat that it is true of any nation at the international scale, that if if there is a turning on the populace uh, in any physical, violent way... Shots being fired shots being fired, uh, civilians being killed, that will then subject any leader to, uh, to the most severe international uh, judicial uh, threats, and perhaps, you know, ending up being strung up in your own nation mm-hmm. because, of the, uh, because it could lead to a civil war and a revolution at that point.
0: Where is the UN in all this?
1: You know, that's a good question, Bill. I actually don't know. I'm fairly certain that, as per the U.N., they are probably neutral on this issue. Uh, Maybe even saying that uh, Venezuela is a sovereign nation, it has a government, and probably encouraging elections.
0: Right. I ask because we talk about a possible U.S. military role. Yes. But well before a U.S. military role, there would be a U.N. military role peacekeeping missions, some sort of UN forces on the ground to try to keep things together, if you will, if there were some sort of uprising, some sort of revolution. But I don't see much going on in the UN in the way of the debate over
1: this. No, and I think it would have to enter into a point of conflict before the UN could even consider it. And, and, and there are nations who are uh, encouraging the election, right, so that Maduro actually throw elections. We're looking at something potentially in the next week, week and a half, right. uh, that will allow for... At least, uh, at least some form of ballot box change right. in the government. So we're hanging tight to watch that. Maduro, of course, is playing for time, mm-hmm. because the more he can intimidate the populace from not going into the streets, the more likely he is to be able to hold on to power. Right. So, uh, so this is a very uh, tenuous. Time. It's a very tense time. And one of the players that we haven't really discussed is a guy named uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who is quite close to Guaido, Guido, um, who is US educated, who is, uh, has been in and out of prison, who actually uh, comes from uh, the Bolivar family. He is a uh, descendant of, uh, of the revolutionary leaders of, uh, of the 19th century. And so um, he's someone to really pay attention to, too. We have not heard anything yet, but we do know that he and Guaido are in very close contact with each other and that a lot of his political uh, leadership is being directed or at least consulted by Lopez.
0: How is information passed in, in Venezuela?
1: Uh, well, it depends on what, whether they're shutting stuff down, but the dominant media that has uh, that's broadcast media is owned by the state, is run the by state the own. state. Right. Yeah, so there is really no form currently, and, and I really haven't read very much. I, as I say, I'm not on the ground, unfortunately, but I haven't really read very much about where the social media mm-hmm. uh, world is functioning. I can tell you what my Twitter feed looks like. Right. It is clear to me that those nations that are supporting Maduro are dominating the social media frame. They are pumping out uh, the message that this is an illegitimate coup, that it is a U.S.-led effort, that, um, that uh, Maduro is the one who should remain in power, and, uh, and if that's also what's hitting the dominant social media structure in Venezuela, which I don't doubt, Uh, Then it's likely that that message is being confused, and that they're having a hard time organizing.
0: So that leads me to a country which has a habit of (laughs) meddling in other people's affairs, and that is Russia, which is part of the problem with the UN. I suspect that if you want to do a UN solution, Vladimir Putin is going to get in the way. What is Vladimir Putin's interest in Venezuela?
1: Well, he has both material interests and he has uh, ideological interests.
0: Well, the material is what the 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 oil. oil. They They actually their interest in oil.
1: Yes, they have a significant investment in uh, the in this. Oil company that uh, we talk, are, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. and and I think also a refinery uh, interests. Okay. Um, so that's on the material side, but on the ideological side, it's not so much that they are uh, looking to a brotherhood nation of socialists. It really is how do you become a thorn in the side of the United States in in our in what could be considered our sphere of influence. So
0: flying bombers to Venezuela and talking about setting up an airbase quite offshore of Venezuela is a good way to do that.
1: Absolutely. And he would, if you were to ask Putin, he would say, well, you know, first of all, he wouldn't admit it. And then secondly, he'd say if he was pushed into it, he'd say, well, look what the United States is doing in Ukraine. You know, and it really is, in his mind, I think, the equivalent that we are meddling in his sphere of influence from his perspective. And he absolutely, in this particular, because there's a tradition and a history of the Soviets and now the Russians being in Latin America, are, are making a concerted effort to make this a very difficult transition uh, and to stop it in, in every way possible. And
0: where is Cuba in all of this?
1: Cuba is highly dependent on, uh, on Venezuela for oil, right. uh, and they don't pay for it, they don't pay for it with, with cash, uh, in fact, the largest cash purchaser of Venezuelan oil is the United States, half a million barrels, uh, which they pay for in dollars, uh, Cuba sends doctors, it sends medicine, it uh, sends intelligence <laughs> advisors, but, uh, but they are highly dependent. On it. And they use their refining capacity to also get hard currency in the open international um, oil markets. Okay. Cuba does. So and of course, China.
0: So let's talk about Trump options and Trump yeah. leverage. So we'll get to the military in a moment. So let's talk about, first of all, economic leverage. Mm-hmm. What are we doing in the way of sanctions?
1: Uh, so we're, as of today, not going to buy any of that oil. We are saying we're not. And, and uh, secondarily, we've frozen the assets and made those assets that were. Uh, explicitly uh, available to the Venezuelan government of Maduro, now accessible by the Venezuelan government so of Guaido. So
0: We treated them like a rod. Yes. Okay. So okay. So sanctions, no oil purchases. Yes. Uh, what about diplomacy?
1: Uh, that's hard to say. You know, because I think a lot of what's going on is going on behind the scenes right, right. now. Uh, clearly, they coordinated with enough allies to be able to get recognition for Venezuela, which was key early on for. Guaido's right. leadership as an interim president of Venezuela, but no, I, I don't think I've seen anything else that's been active except for some of these silly things that Bolton has done. I'm
0: curious about, Marcos, the idea if there's any kind of back channel onto that country. For example, let's say let's say Hillary Clinton is president, mm-hmm. let's say Barack Obama has a third term, there would be a very natural back channel. That would be Cuba. Especially yes. if you're Obama and you've started relations with Cuba, you have a sort of a friendly footing, you could go to the Cuban government and say, look, you need to get involved and help us get a get a solution here we can work with. I don't see where the Trump administration, though, has a back channel. They immediately, immediately turned on Cuba. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure who else in that region helped me out here, but is there another country in Colombia, Peru, any any country nearby, are they in the position to act as a third party here and help broker a solution?
1: Well, not insofar as they've also recognized the Guaido government. You know, the one potential would be uh, perhaps Bolivia, but we don't exactly have the best relationship with Evo Morales. Right. You know, so um, but Brazil is a big enough nation; it's close enough. Colombia is certainly a big enough nation. They are suffering the brunt of a lot of the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Venezuelans are heading over the border in droves right now into into Colombia. So perhaps there's a ability, and uh, and I'm sure that we're encouraging, and probably uh, providing safe passage for Maduro and any of those who are near him into a third country. So. Uh, we have to be able to get those messages to him, and I'm sure we have. Uh, but I'm not quite sure who's delivering those messages.
0: Okay. Um, one thing which is interesting about the situation, Marcos, is this is the first foreign policy, we'll call it a crisis yet, but mm-hmm. it's a challenge. First foreign policy challenge faced by Trump, where he is not surrounded by people who would naturally push against his instincts. Not talking about the likes of Jim Mattis or yeah. Rex Tillerson or Gary Cohen or Times H.R. McMaster. Yeah. His new team, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State. Uh, the acting defense attorney Patrick Shannon, they tend to let him run with his instincts. Yeah. So he's not challenged on this. And enter into this equation a fellow named Elliot Abrams. Yeah. Who is Elliot Abrams?
1: Uh, well, it depends on if you ask Congress or if you ask the <laughs> average. He was held in contempt a while back during Iran Contra. Right. Um, so he
0: was, Elliot Abrams goes back to the um, Reagan and Bush 41 administrations. He was in the State Department of those. He was a casualty of the Iran crisis, the Iran Contra scandal. Mm. Yes. he had to plead guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress. Yes, but he's interesting, Marcos, because he's a neocon. Yeah, and, and he wanted to join the Trump administration right. in 2017. Rex Tillerson wanted him to be the number two. Yes, and he met with Donald Trump. Yes, and Donald Trump said no.
1: Yeah, he had said some fairly silly things about Donald Trump, as I recall, during he, the election Trump as well.
0: Held a very personal grudge against him right. and not give him the job, but here we are now, two years later and he is now what, I guess he's our special, special appointment or something, special envoy for the situation. How did this
1: happen? I have no idea how he worked himself back into this, uh, into this position, uh, how he got himself into the good graces of the Trump administration to begin with, and secondarily, how could you send somebody who has this relationship to Central America and who is recognized for his foibles, I think, uh, in that region, regardless of the intentions, um, into a region where, again, we're, we're trying to distance ourselves from the heavy handedness of the past during this opportune moment to really build uh, good graces with Latin America by being on the right side of this. And I think Trump's instincts on this have been good, by the way. I think he's actually He's following, I think. And, and by the way, even when Jim Mattis was in, and HR McMaster were in the White House, there was there was a movement towards trying to change the government in Venezuela. Right. I doubt they were trying to stop him in this in, in that time. I think that we're looking at actually a policy that is a positive policy that we could screw up pretty badly if we do things like send Elliot Abrams as an envoy to uh, to Venezuela.
0: Now, Iran counter was 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Trujillo, Dominican Republic, was 50, 55 years ago. Right. Um, Teddy Rose wrote the Panama Canal. Let's see, that's 115 years mm-hmm. ago. How long are the memories in that part of the world?
1: Well, they're pretty fresh because this president has also been quite critical of Mexico. Right. So it's not as if we've ignored Latin America. It's that we've actually said that everything north of Panama, in essence, is unwelcome in this nation. Uh, and so those leaders are looking at it. And, and by the way, some of those leaders are are avowed enemies of the United States. So I just pick Nicaragua. You know, we're still looking at a Noriega Um, leadership in that country, and they have no love lost for this administration. So there's plenty of both history and contemporary uh, relations with the United States that's going to keep them from being uh, suspect, at at least, and... and really fearful at most of what it is that this administration is plotting and planning. So the more we can appear to be a hands-off supporter diplomatic, uh, diplomatically and, and trying to help this, really help the populace of Venezuela achieve what it seeks, which is a bit of food, you know, some humanitarian aid and a representative liberal democratic leadership. As opposed to this autocratic, dictatorial um, goon who is sitting at the top of the Venezuelan government, then the better off we'll be.
0: Okay, so simply then, what do we want Venezuela to do?
1: Well, ideally, you know, Maduro, Maduro gets Maduro. on a plane and goes to lovely Havana. So
0: Maduro has to go. That's step
1: number one. I think so. And he has to go. He has to go willingly, and he has to go with a few of those who are now his staunchest I, supporters. Not
0: hold another election, just
1: go. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, another election could create uh, the conditions for a civil war. Uh, to Because, because again, those would be contested. How do you make sure that it's a fair and free election under these circumstances? Right. I, I just don't see it happening.
0: Even if you got international, even if Jimmy Carter came in
1: to watch it. <laughs> yes, even if Jimmy Carter and all of the international uh, observers were to arrive at this point, I think it would be difficult, especially since it has to happen so quickly. Right. How do you set up the systems for this in, in in no time, in essence? Okay, so
0: step one, Maduro goes. Yes. So step number two then, Guaido is in charge.
1: As an interim president. As an interim and interim then, president. Yes, he is not going to be the president uh, because he has not been elected the president, okay. but he can, with, uh, with legitimacy and authority, uh, step up into that position which he is now claiming and uh, which he has been sworn into. Um, and hold it until elections can be conducted right. in, a, in a free, fair, and internationally recognized so and observed one, way.
0: one or two years, I'd say? No,
1: I'd say it'd have to be much faster than much that. Much faster than that. Okay. Yeah, I think you have to move fairly quick. It would have to be this year, okay. uh, and maybe within six months. I, but, but not something that's going to happen in two weeks. You just can't pull it off.
0: Okay, so that takes us to step three, which is a free, fair, legitimate
1: election. That's right.
0: All right. So then, step four is somebody wins that election? Yeah, that'll also?
1: be L- Lopez, probably. Right. I would guess okay. that it'll be Leopoldo Lopez.
0: And issue number one of that election is going to be um,
1: the economy, right? Yeah, it has to be. It has to be really just the delivery. It's the
0: economy, El Stupido,
1: right? <laughs> Exacto Mundo. <Yes. laughs> yeah, it has to be because they have to deliver. And, and the good news is that there are frozen assets overseas. Yes. There are, there are you know, I know you probably know this, but you know OPEC was started by Venezuela. It was not a Middle Eastern uh, organization. They have the world's largest reserves underground uh, with the help and support of many nations uh, that are not that are willing to help uh, Venezuela recover right. Uh, in, an, in a situation which is unlike what happened in Iraq, where there is right. not fighting, where you actually have the support of the populace to actually try and build these institutions and and develop those resources, you can move relatively quickly to actually start extracting, distributing, and cashing in on those hydrocarbon reserves.
0: All right, then let's don't talk. Let's not talk about a doctor, the mineral doctor, and let's talk about a plan, the Marshall Plan, not yeah. John Marshall, but George Marshall. Yeah. Would it be in the best interest of the United States? Would it be feasible, possible, do you think, Marcos, for the U.S. to have some version of a Marshall Plan for Venezuela?
1: I think so. I think they could certainly lead a multinational. You know, we're not we're not in the business in the Trump administration of, you know, nation building. It is explicitly not what this administration is doing. But what we have seen with this administration is a soft spot for any country that has oil underground, right. whether it be Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. So, um you know, there will be extraordinary measures taken, I think, right. that are not typical uh, of uh, the relationships that we have with non-hydrocarbon nations. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought that this was one of the reasons that Rex Tillerson was picked as Secretary of State, was his relationship to big oil and to nations that uh, have these reserves, it, using a sort of oil diplomacy um, to to move our our transactional diplomatic orientation during the Trump administration to something very concrete or at least something fluid, if you will. Uh, So I think there may be an exception for Venezuela in this concept of a type of Marshall Plan, but, but in a multinational sense.
0: And how would you sell that in terms of America's best interest?
1: the same way Donald Trump does, was I'd go in there and I'd take the oil to be crude about it, not to no pun intended, no pun intended in fact there. Um, but yes, I mean, it really is to try and figure out how to dominate right. the industry at that point with resources and personnel and, uh, and material to help develop that and, and take advantage of it as well in the process. And of course, there are those interests that will be upset about that because one of those who's investing heavily in those resources is China. And we're talking about the tens of billions of dollars, where they've loaned the government of Maduro money to be able to survive. They've planted, and they're, and what they're doing is they're taking the interest on that loan in petroleum. Uh, if the status quo changes, it changes the ability of Venezuela to pay back those loans. And I think that you will find a great deal of pushback from Beijing on this.
0: Interesting. Uh, so if we are involved in some sort of effort to rebuild the Venezuelan economy we might have conditions we'll have one conditions what are our conditions for Russia
1: uh, to uh, for Russia can well we,
0: I, can we be as blunt as to say we're going to help rebuild your economy but you know what you got to rethink your relationship with Vladimir Putin
1: yes I think that's probably the case mm-hmm. I, I could see that easily and part of the thing that I'm when I that I was suggesting in this Latin Spring analogy yes. is that in fact you know you're seeing a lot of change within Latin America. And and certainly dramatic change, not necessarily left or right, right? We're looking at Brazil, you're looking at Mexico. Those are two ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, But in both cases, you're seeing popular democratic movements actually having a voice, changing a status quo that has been entrenched for quite a while and, and systems that have been entrenched. And I think that's what you're seeing now in Venezuela as well. So there's a real opportunity. And in that type of environment, there is less room for strong tie relationships to russia but there's also in these newer open more open more popular systems more opportunity for the types of political meddling that russia is expert at to engage and uh, so there would have to be the ability for us to develop our systems not just for our own electoral protection but also to help those newly those, those nations in Latin America, they're trying to find their footing right now to be able to confront those types of activities from abroad.
0: Marcos, if the United States government, what's the better return on investment? Is it rebuilding the Venezuelan economy, or is it getting involved in the economies of El Salvador, Costa Rica, Honduras, where the migration caravans begin?
1: Um, well, I don't think the Trump administration sees it as an either-or. I think they see— Well, well it's an either-or. Yeah, well, it's, it shouldn't be. Uh, right. I, uh, you know, we really, in particular, when you move up towards Central America and we're looking at caravans and issues of people and migrating into this country, right. it's absolutely a-, a but, but,
0: but you have to important. prioritize. Otherwise, we yes. go around the world, we could find dozens of countries where we should be going in and doing things. But we don't. We, we prioritize.
1: That's right. And we prioritize Venezuela in part because we know that there's a return and the ability to actually help them, in this instance, use their resources to help rebuild the nation. Those types of resources, from our perspective, from this Trump administration perspective, don't exist. I think it's a little bit uh, of a fallacy if you have to also consider who else is interested in these nations. China is very interested in Nicaragua. They're interested in building a second type of Panama Canal. We should be interested in whether or not they're going to build a canal across the Gulf of Fonseca right. into, the, uh, into the Atlantic. So, um, And we should be interested, and I know we are, in the regime that is still in place in Nicaragua. Um, Well, are we as interested in these other Central American countries? No. I mean, they just don't have the types of resources that interest the United States. I think the idea that we're not in the business of nation-building is taking hold significantly there. And the answer in this administration is very singular, which is build the wall.
0: If Hillary Clinton were president, this would be a really interesting discussion Mm -hmm. because she would be looking at Venezuela and she'd be thinking about Libya and Muammar Gaddafi. Interesting and kind of flashing back to that situation and how that worked out. Yes, or didn't? Or did not exactly. Yes. Um, which does get us to the idea of the Latin Spring and the in the Arab Spring. And what was the tipping point for the Arab Spring? When did the Arab Spring really blossom?
1: <laughs> well, did it blossom? I mean, you know, it, mean, but
0: when did it really? When did it really take? Fight? I mean, you had protests, you had uprisings, but when did it? When did it hit the tipping point?
1: I think when Egypt finally flipped. It, when Egypt flipped. Yeah, yeah I think that because that was so unexpected that right. that we would lose someone who, I was in Egypt just shortly before it happened and of course was watching it from a U.S. Embassy in uh, in Central Europe at the time. Uh, nobody expected Mubarak, who was referred to as the last pharaoh, to, uh, to actually leave office. And so that flip and the fact that the United States supported that flip and that President Obama supported the changeover, uh, I think was the tipping point, and and then, of course, made it possible for Syrians and others to then uprise within their own nations. So
0: then let's take that to Venezuela and ask the question of what would be a possible tipping point for Maduro in Venezuela. Would it be Maduro turning the troops on the civilians and shooting civilians in the streets? Would it be a group of generals getting together in a room and deciding he has to go? What What do you think will cause things to change?
1: Uh, I think either of those would change. It, if, if it goes violent, I I. First of all, would feel terribly for the Venezuelan people because it would just be a bloodbath. What does it, got, what does it
0: got to tell you? Do you think there'll be violence?
1: Uh, no, I think Maduro has probably got enough survival skills and and instincts to know that it would be the end. It would be the end of him and his family in some way. Uh, he would not survive. That right. that type of a turn on his population, and you're already seeing him talking in more moderate terms about going towards elections, and for him to buy time, right. but uh, but also trying to appease the international community in some way to say, yeah, I'm willing to go into a democratic uh, transition. Um, I think the United States has already had those conversations in some way on on uh, on a coup, as it were, as a a senior leadership coup. Uh, Certainly Tillerson intimated that that was the case last year right. when he was talking pretty bluntly about it. Um, it would be probably the right thing to do. It would, but you always have to worry in Latin America whenever that happens if, in fact, what follows is then a democratic transition. Once you get the generals involved at the political level, um, it, they tend to kind of like where they're sitting mm-hmm. and don't necessarily want to engage with a, a political leadership.
0: Is it safe to be an American in Venezuela right now?
1: Um, probably not. I, the State Department today uh, issued warnings about being in the streets. So, uh, you know, if you're a Venezuelan-American and you can blend in and you feel like you understand the risks, then okay. But if you are uh, Elliot Abrams, I wouldn't be walking down the streets. Right. Of, if uh, I'm
0: walking down the street as a, a Norte Americano. Yeah. Would somebody who's fed up with the conditions of the country want to take it out on me? Would they blame me for the situation? I,
1: I That's not happening yet.
0: That's uh, so Maduro's not turned against the U.S. in terms of propaganda?
1: No, and in fact, he's backed off from his insistence that we get out of the embassy within 72 hours, <laughs> as he first did. So he's already recognizing that he's got to soft-pedal this because, right. he, I, as I say, I think he has survival instincts.
0: So we're not the great Satan anymore.
1: Oh, we are. (laughs) We are the great Satan. And that's really what's being, that's the caricature that's being drawn internationally by those nations and those who are meddling uh, uh, internationally, both on the social media front, but also in whatever media is available to draw this as a a U.S.-led coup d'etat against the Maduro government. So yes, we are absolutely being seen as the gringos who are Uh, behind everything that is happening right now, in uh, in the streets and with uh, support for Guaido.
0: So the Trump administration should not go to Caracas. Mike Pompeo should not pay a visit.
1: Uh, Not until there's a government change, I think that's right. We should stay as far away from Caracas right now as possible, but I really would encourage the Organization of American States and those who have recognized um, Guaido but who are Latin states to do whatever they can to Either go to Caracas or to meet uh, nearby to have these discussions and to try and move Maduro in the right direction.
0: And how would that work inside the OAS? Is there is there an alpha dog member of the OAS who sort of brings the group along, or
1: well, tradition is the United States. Yes, but <laughs> so the, yes, but yeah. we should we should be at the meeting, but we shouldn't be right. prominent or visible at the meeting.
0: So which country then? Which country or countries plural should be the ones well. to step up and?
1: I think in this instance, we've shown that we have some affinity. We, the Trump administration, have shown that we have some affinity to the new government in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Um, We paid obeisance to the leadership. We've shown up to the inauguration. Um, I think that's probably a logical next step to try and use Brazil. It is the big dog, as it were, both physically and economically in the region. So, yeah, that would make sense. Maybe Argentina as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Brazil is, has a newly elected government that has uh, popular support and is really has a fair amount of political will that it can expend to try and do this regionally, and it would and it would really show, you know, the ability of Brazil to take on a role in South America that it should in many ways have, which is a leadership role.
0: Right, and Venezuela matters to Brazil.
1: Um, well, I, as with everyone else, there's the potential that it has for, f- as, a, as a petroleum market for Brazil. Uh, for Brazil, there's, uh, in any post-Maduro reality, there's going to need to be uh, help, so from a humanitarian perspective, but also goods and services coming from Brazil, where you know a lot of folks have fled, I think that there's some nexus, uh, and also to just Move the entire uh, southern continent into a more popularly elected democratic liberal system and and to and to give the impulse towards that, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, to just move that that whole continent in that direction where it is inclined to go right now
0: okay, final question, Marcos. You're the Trump administration, and you're looking around the world and you have a lot of thorny problems. Mm-hmm. You don't have a massive global war going on like the Second World War, but you have a lot of little theatric situations going on. Mm -hmm. There's this crazy guy in North Korea you have to deal with. There is a stubborn government in China Mm -hmm. that you're fighting economically. There is a situation in Afghanistan which may be coming to some sort of resolution soon. There is a situation in Syria. There is uncertain political leadership in the UK and France right now. Add Venezuela to the list. So you're seeding, ranking these things, giving a ranking, a DEFCON, whatever you want to. Where does Venezuela fit into the series of challenges/slash headaches for the Trump administration and foreign policy?
1: Well, today I'd say is probably one or two. One or two. Yeah, um, I think the decisions have already been made on Syria and Afghanistan, so they sort of fall a little bit below the the threshold. Um, we're on a track right now as a as a matter of. Uh, Yesterday's discussions in Qatar, the preliminary movement towards some form of peace negotiations and ceasefire with the Taliban, Um, I'm not going to judge right now uh, what the chances of success might be. We don't know the outlines of that other than there will be no ISIS that will be allowed to be on uh, Afghan territory or al-Qaeda. Whether or not the Taliban can enforce that is unclear. Syria, we've made very clear that we're getting out of town. Again, the details are still being worked out, but I, but I think those fall under the category of mission accomplished as far as the White House is concerned. Uh, North Korea and China are a package deal, Uh, they're not really separate, you know, uh, we've got a summit coming up in February, whoever's working on that summit is, I'm sure, way down the road of what it is the deliverables should be, they're going to meet in Vietnam. And of course, uh, with China, we're also not, uh, it's not on the front burner entirely because the negotiations are going on and we're still within that 90-day window. Of whether or not we're going to come up with something that works, and my suspicion is there will be something that's a sop from the Chinese to the Trump administration to allow President Trump to declare a victory, um, but not necessarily anything structural that's going to change uh, in, within China itself. So those are all the ones you just mentioned. The one that's burning right now, uh, that's that's real, that's actual, that we can have an effect on, where. Where Miami matters and where uh, Washington can actually declare a significant win and, and really m- move the needle on the foreign policy front in our backyard uh, is Venezuela.
0: Okay. And final final question: The Monroe Doctrine declared yes. dead in 2013 after <laughs> yes. after a 200-year run almost. Yes. Is it back? Is it alive? Does it have a pulse?
1: Yeah, I think it's in its newer evolution, and it has been an evolutionary uh, doctrine. It hasn't been a singular doctrine. What it's really said is that, I mean, to really simplify it, that Latin America and South America are part of America's sphere of influence. The same way that Russia claims that Ukraine is within its sphere of influence, and that anything we're doing within that area is really unwelcome and, and will be uh, countered.
0: So then let's adjust that. If the idea of the Monroe Doctrine, Marcos, was to keep European powers yes. uh, from emerging Latin American countries, yeah, how do you then adjust that for the 21st century when the threat is not Spain coming into, mm-hmm. into, into in Latin America or, or England or those countries? How do you then rewrite it?
1: It's very simple, because the greatest incursion into Latin America today is not the Russians. It is the Chinese, Chinese. and they're coming in with money, money uh, and uh, advisors, and they are currently the largest investors in Latin America. It's plain and simple. They've done uh, resource deals uh, with Chile. Uh, They're looking for tungsten, and they're looking for other uh, battery uh, rare earths that will uh, be supplied in uh, the southern hemisphere. And so uh, yes, I think uh, this is again fits into Donald Trump, the Trump administration, the Trump doctrine um, that is going to evolve into what this Monroe Doctrine is, which is how do you keep China at bay or at least acting as a fair, uh, in a fair and, uh, and um, non-incursive way into Latin America. Um, you know, when I think about the Trump administration's approach to um, geopolitics, I think Donald Trump sees the world, in, and we discussed this before, in, in a G3 world where there's really just three countries that matter. It's Russia, China, China, China and, and the United, United States. 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 Right. And so when you carve it out in these sort of 19th century terms, uh, you know, then, then Latin America firmly falls within the United States sphere of influence, and then China will claim what it claims, whether it's the South China Sea or Taiwan or any other areas, well, we are and we should Confront those uh, for for good reason, and then Russia will make its claims. But I think Donald Trump feels that that's not a bad idea. That in fact, you know, you can come to terms uh, in in this regard, and and I think that's where the greatest challenge is for those who are opposed to the Trump administration's policies is the de facto ceding of these spheres of influence to to either communist or authoritarian nations that shouldn't be able to exert their influence and and uh, expend the resources to both counter the United States and to uh, negate the power of democracy and of liberal democracy.
0: So a prediction, Marcos, the next time John Bolton meets with reporters, there will be a map of the Caribbean ocean behind him. And you know what it'll say in the Caribbean? Mare Nostrum.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a nine-dash line, right, <laughs> going from uh, South America to Florida. Okay.
0: Marcos, enjoyed the conversation, and let's hope that things in Venezuela work out peacefully. Yes, indeed. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenue available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word and get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Marcos Kunalakis and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst, that's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Now for the toughest part of the podcast, Marcos Kunalakis is also on Twitter, and here's the challenge. His Twitter feed handle is at Kunalakis M, that is spelled at K-O-U-N-A-L-A-K-I-S, capital Right. You did
1: indeed. Thanks, Bill. What
0: does Kulongus translate to Greek, by the way?
1: Uh, well, it, it doesn't, but <laughs> most people uh, think that it means little rabbit <laughs> because it's kunelikis instead of ku but yes, it's, uh, but anyway, most people make that mistake and so they call me little rabbit.
0: I had to ask. Yes. Well, Little Rabbit also wrote a wonderful book last year called <laughs> Spin Wars and Spy Games Global Media and Intelligence Gathering. You can find that at Amazon and Hoover. I recommend you get that. Anything else I should be plugging for you while I'm here?
1: Uh, no. You know, I, that's really good. Thank you for uh, plugging the book in, in my column, which is weekly, every Fridays. You can On Fridays, you can pick it up in the Miami Herald, which means that it lands at the doorstop of uh, Mar-a-Lago every week.
0: And you get it Monday in the Hoover Daily Report. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening.
1: For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org
0: or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.